And we are back. We are super excited today to have Kurt Wilkin, who is the co-founder. I'm going to let him introduce himself because I forgot to bring up his LinkedIn profile. And that's how we roll on Serpent Sales, being massively unprepared. <laughs> Kurt, you are the co-founder of? Of Hire Better. Richard, I feel so special. I got to tell you, co-founder of Hire Better, I just wrote a book, as Scott was talking about, called Who's Your Mic? So uh, ready to dive into it. What's the name of the book? Who's Your What? Who Who's your mic? And the subtitle is a no bullshit guide to the people you'll meet on your entrepreneurial journey. Oh, this is good. Wow. I wish we'd had it ahead of time, actually. That would have been good. So a couple of fun Got facts before we get going. Uh, many of you know that Richard is from Georgia and is sort of the de facto Georgia Bulldog. Uh, our friend Kurt here is an Arkansas Razorback fan. And maybe if the spirit moves him, he'll put on a little costume for us. He's got a great Arkansas. <laughs> Arkansas. For an Arkansas fan, it didn't take much more than that, Scott. There so, we go. Look at that. Go. Yeah, he's got his razor hat. back on. Oh, man. So, I got, I've actually I'm, run with the Bulls in Pamplona wearing that hat. Amazing. Oh, I have also cool. run with the Bulls in Pamplona. You're one of the first people I've ever met who's also run with the Bulls in Pamplona. And yeah. Richard, fun fact about Kurt. Kurt was uh, Braden, my older son's Little League coach years ago. Oh, I didn't know. I, eight or nine years old, something like that. That was, that was where we first met. So tell us, tell us, Kurt, uh, and the audience, what is Hire Better, first of all? Let's start there. What is Hire Better? What do you all do? You know, we're in the recruiting industry, but I'll tell you, I'll be fir the first one to tell you the recruiting industry is broken, so we do things different. We consider ourselves a, a strategic talent partner for our company, for our clients, and we work with entrepreneurial companies who are going past that scrappy startup, everybody do everything phase to professional, uh, professionalizing their organization and really trying to reach scale. We help them assess their existing team and build a new, uh, you know, their, their future team. Okay, so you said something interesting, which was that recruiting is broken. What I want to know is what broke recruiting? Or has what it always been broken? You know, uh, I, I don't know want to say always, but one of the problems with recruiting is how we as companies treat recruiters. We expect them to go find candidates and not pay them until they find candidates that we hire. And the industry is ripe for people just slinging shit up against the wall and hoping you, you like somebody. And it's really more of a, a process of selling your, their candidate to you versus you truly assessing uh, the right candidate. So if you're really great at hiring, it could work. But most of us, let's be honest, aren't great at hiring. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested because Scott uh, absolutely is... Um, anti-recruitment so as Hold much on. as he wants that's to pull not, up the that's not, entirely, to pull that's the, not entirely fair that's not entirely fair. i hate recruiters too my my team hates it when i say that but i hate recruiters <laughs> too no my, my my whole thing was just that um i decided a long time ago that it would be cheaper and better if i just did all of the recruiting for sales which i knew how to do myself so that was part of why i started building a brand and trying to get you know the word out there but if i had to go hire an engineer if i had to go hire you know, a product person or a marketer or whatever. I don't know how to do that. So if I couldn't get it through my network, then I would go take some outside help. Don't, 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 don't try to throw me under the bus already, Richard. You're the enemy here. You're the bulldog. He's the Razorback. I'm neutral. Okay. Right. Right. But why am I the enemy? We're the defending national champions. That, <laughs> makes you the, that by default makes you the enemy. Actually, you're most people's friend because everybody's tired of Bama. So you're most people's friend. That's true. But pretty soon we're going to be tired of you guys too. So don't that's get probably, too uh, high and mighty. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. Make a good point. So, so if that's I, wanna, how, go ahead, I have a question for you, Kurt. So 
I agree with you about how companies kind of roll their eyes. It's like we need this ugh, recruiters and, you know, we see it as like this massive, you know, five figure immediate situation, right? Um, what is the better way though? Like what's, if you could get in front of, you know, five or 10, to your point, entrepreneurs who are going from that founder led sales to that next level and they need to start getting a recruiter, what are like a couple of things you'd ask them to like rethink their mindset around? Well, the first thing I would say is the recruiter is just a one piece of the puzzle. There's so much more that goes into it prior to that. So what happens is most entrepreneurial companies have outgrown members of their team and they don't want to admit it or they don't know it yet. So they've got blind spots. So almost by definition, you really need to assess your existing team before you go out and seek somebody to, to be part of your team. And so that's really what, what the books part, a lot of my books about uh, the title characters, who's your Mike, Mike is your best friend that from college that you hired as your accountant when you became a real company. And he was doing all the behind the scenes, you know, non-fun administrative stuff while you as the entrepreneur were out selling and developing the product. And over time you promoted him to a, a, you know, from accountant to controller to CFO. And now he's trying to negotiate multi-million dollar deals. And he's so far in over his head. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. And he doesn't want to admit it to you. So really Mike is not a bad guy. He's just not great for your CFO for the so, next level. Let's so talk about that for a couple of things. There. I know a few mics, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody so does. Everybody's got one. So there's a couple of them. My, my mic is named Scott, but um, <laughs> like, it's got it. We've been, we haven't done this in a while. So, you know, it sounds like the gloves are off pretty hard. Right now. <laughs> um, and I agree with you, right? Like the people who got you to where you are may not be the people who need to take you where you need to go. Right. But now let's talk about, so I am that founder, co-founder. I have hired my friend. Um, do I try to keep Mike in the organization? You know, you know, hopefully his friend, like, if Scott and I were in this situation, maybe we were once, we, we'd we be comfortable to say, look, we need to have a conversation and, you know, it's business and it's not personal and you try to do those things. But so I think I have two questions. One, do you try to keep them in the organization? And two, how do you do that? Like how, you know, it's not easy for people to talk about their friendships and their emotions and their, their work stuff together. So, you know, we're all a little long in the tooth, the three of us. Um, but what do you try to teach that, that, you know, that, that person who's just out of college, right. Or, um, you know, maybe they've been in the working world, but now they're in their thirties and they just got their startup and they got their funding. And, you know, so those are my two questions. Do you keep them? And then how do you try to coach someone to ha have that conversation with their friend? And I'll maybe give you one, one third thing to add to that, but you're, you're touching on the hardest part of this for entrepreneurs. Cause most of us are, are half glass full folks. We're also, we, we love people. And so it's hard for us, especially to part ways with our friends or have those challenging conversations. So it tends to fester. So the first question is, uh, do you keep Mike or whoever you're Scott? Um, what I think about is, look, is, is, is Mike an asshole? Well, let's make this fun. Let's use Scott. Is Scott an asshole? That's just a cancer to the organization. Get him the hell okay. out. Right. Okay. So that one's easy. Is Scott a good culture fit? That's like a big part of the glue that holds you guys together. There may be a role for Scott. Um, then the, the next question I would ask that you didn't ask that I'll, I'll a plant for your for your audience is um, what what do I do with Scott? And so I like to add, I've got four simple questions that I lay out. Two of them are pretty I'll call them scientific. The other two are very gut oriented. So let me go through those questions right quick. The first question is 
knowing today what you know about your organization and where you're going, would you enthusiastically rehire Scott for that role, for the CFO role? Say that again, just for people listening, because I think that's you what and I stole, I stole all these questions from people like Vern Harnish and Gino Wickman and other people, thought leaders in the middle market. So these aren't Kurt's questions necessarily. But the first question is, knowing today what you know about your organization and where you're going, would you enthusiastically rehire Scott for that role? It doesn't mean Scott needs to go. It doesn't mean that he's a bad person. It just means he may not be your CFO of the future. So in Scott's case, maybe he's a strong accountant, strong individual contributor. Maybe he becomes your, you know, accountant versus your CFO, and you bring somebody in from the outside, as an example. Got it. Got it. So, do you find, that, do you find people asking this question about co-founders? You know, it's a Ooh. it's a real deal, and and uh, part of the reason I'm I stepped aside as CEO from of Higher Better is I'm no longer the guy to take Higher Better to the next level. So, it's it's real. If you're humble enough to look in the mirror and say you're not the guy or the gal, man, it can be magical. Can, can you talk about that? A little bit i know it's getting into you know some personal kind of stuff but like how do how do you have the realization and the lack of ego to say you know what i'm not the person to take this to the next level and here's the reason why well let me just point out to the audience we went from one tangent me answering uh richard's question to then you answering questions about something else now we're asking the third tangent so we'll keep going if we want that's what we do yeah. <laughs> All right. Perfect. It's a great way to not answer the first question. Um, you know, in my case, my, my case may be uh, special, Scott. I'm not really sure, to be honest. Uh, I, I've had some success and, and uh, I had a couple of exits, so I don't need this for my ego. So that made it easy for me. I've been around other situations where the founder was hell bent to keep that CEO title and hold all the reins and, you know, rode it all the way down into the ditch. So it really, I think, depends on the person. Honestly, I'm not sure if I would have the same frame of mind if I hadn't had that success. So if I'm if I'm being honest. So what, how do you coach that person? Then, like, let's say there's that that co-founder here who's on either side of this, right? They could be the one who needs to call out their partner. They could be the one who's like, oh, now I got to look at myself. You yeah. Um, so I, I actually can speak to this because I had a similar situation with a partner. Um, what what I think it comes down to is the trust and respect that you guys have as as founders as partners, and if you've got a good relationship, it's a it's a better conversation than if you're just button heads all the time. Yeah. It's same way with your marriage, right? But I think it's uh, for for me, I, I identify what that role needs for the future, and what I know of them as their passion and and, and expertise and and interests, and oftentimes they're misaligned, and so. For example, Scott, I might look at you and say, Scott, you love to sell. You're a, a you're a, a savant and you love to travel. Man, right now you're grinding 100 hours weeks doing paperwork and managing the sales team. You're much better at the art of the deal and and having that that thought leadership, the surf surf and sales that you guys do. Why don't you go do that and let's bring in Richard, who's a better sales manager. I'm making all this up, of course. Sales manager to drive the sales and build the next level team while you go do the cool shit that you do, but you still bring in million dollar deals. I just don't need you managing a bunch of sales guys. Scott, is that what we want to do now? Are we, <laughs> are we both sitting here in quiet going, I know Scott's quiet. going, yeah, how do I do that? How do I make Richard go do all that so I can travel? Well, that, that part I'm not worried about. I feel like I do a pretty good job of that. But you know, what I'm, what I'm thinking about is, the original question, which is, you know, 
would you enthusiastically endorse this person or hire this person for the same role again? And it's an interesting question to ask yourself about people who work for you, but also people that you work directly alongside. Like it's not 2017 when we founded Surf and Sales anymore. So if we had this, if you had this idea right now, like would I still be the person that you pick? Would you still be the person I pick? It's a very interesting conversation and a powerful conversation. And uh, I really like that as an interview question. I'm going to start trying to incorporate it into some of the work that I, that I do. How would you, how would you incorporate that into an interview question, Scott? That's really cool. How would I, I incorporate about an interview that. question? Yeah. How would you do you that? You mean for the podcast or for uh, hiring somebody? I don't know. However, Scott wants to answer it. Oh, I mean, I took it for hiring somebody. Yeah. Like that's the part I, that's where I thought you were heading. I don't know yet. That's why I said I need to, to think about it. I'm just processing all this. I'm not going to, I don't want to give a bullshit off the cuff answer to that. I'm, I'm hearing Kurt's question for the first time, even though he says it's not his, it's other people's. But so I mean, I'm processing it and that tells me that it impacted me in a, in a powerful way. And I'm appreciative of that. That's a big learning moment for me from the yeah. first 15 want, minutes of the show. I want to ask a different question, Kurt, but before we sort of, book in this topic i want to make sure we didn't miss anything like you you got well, i had this i had four questions that i asked richard so i can give you three other questions that i, I ask in this situation that might do it yeah, like, let's focus. stay focused here because i think i'll run through them quick so we can get through first them. job is to keep us focused <laughs> slowly learning right now that's what these glasses do right this is my focus glasses all right the second one is uh does mike have the skills experience and tools to get us to that next level however you decide to define that so it's, again, does he have the experience and the skills to, to get you there? The third and the fourth are more gut-oriented questions, so they're not scientific, but for me, they help. The th uh, one is, what if I had a team full of Scots? How strong mm. would my team be? And the second one is, what if Scott walked in tomorrow morning and just quit on the spot? How would you feel? Mm. And on that one, I think all of our initial reactions, oh, crap, what do I do? But if you really process and give it like 24 hours to think about, would I be relieved that Scott made my job easier by quitting for me versus having had that tough conversation? Yeah. I think anybody who's been in leadership long enough has probably had one of those yeah. that's relief kind of moments. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I know I, I know I have. Yeah. So, Kurt, I'm going to just again, because this is so good. Can you quickly just repeat the four questions? Just yeah, so you bet. We're listening. So uh, the first one is uh, knowing today what you know about your organization and where you're going, would you enthusiastically rehire Scott for the same role? And enthusiastically is a big part of that question. Number two, does Scott have the skills, experience, and tools to get us to the next level, quote unquote? The third is, what if I had a team full of Scots? How strong would my team be? And the last one is, what if Scott came into my office and quit tomorrow morning? How would that make me feel? Fantastic really questions. Good. I would encourage everybody to steal these questions. Yeah. And, and no you, pride of authorship, brother. You can uh, send them to my book site, who'syourmike.com for questions, but that's all cool. It's all cool. I get one-tenth of one-tenth of one cent every time a book is, is sold. Yeah, I'm with there you. you. Uh, and Amazon gets all of the rest, as I'm painfully, painfully aware. Let's talk about that, actually, since, since we're, we're bringing it up. What drove you to even go through the process of writing the book? Because it sure as hell is not for the royalty checks that you're going to get. That's a great question. I'll, I'll give, I'll be real 
I'm 1000% candid here and I'm going to tell a little bit of a story. Uh, first of all, probably eight years ago, uh, I, I wanted to take the conversation that you and I are having right now from a one-to-one, you know, over a coffee table or a lunch table to one-to-many. So the, the four questions you guys just heard, they're like, oh, that's awesome. I was having these conversations all the time because founders have no one to talk to. And so I wanted to go one to many. So I thought I'd write a book and I was lazy and scared and just didn't do it. Then COVID hit. I know maybe your audience doesn't want to hear about COVID, but COVID hit. And I started putting myself out there. I started facilitating these roundtables. I started going on doing LinkedIn lives. I started doing a podcast, started doing a lot of writing and it got me out of my comfort zone. And I said, fuck it, let's write a book. And so I wanted to take these stories. Now here's where it gets interesting because um, I think I heard you guys on a previous episode. M- many of us hate business books. Me too. I freaking hate business books. And so the last thing I want to do is write another bullshit business book. So um, I, I believe that most of them have a nugget of information that is really powerful, but a nugget and you've got to fill 200 pages of book. So there's just a lot of fluff. So I didn't want to do that. So I said, well, what can I do? I had this story about Mike that I'd written many years ago that was very pretty popular. And I started brainstorming, man, there's all these other characters that we meet on our entrepreneurial journey. We got Pipeline Paul, the big swinging, you know what, sales guy that comes in from the outside promising all these great sales and never- the Rolodex. Never happens, exactly. Rolodex, Robert. Harry, the hustler, who's, uh, you know, your, your great sales guy that will sell ice to Eskimos. He grew up through the organization with you. And then you decide you need to grow and, and, uh, and now you, you need a sales leader. So you make Harry, your sales leader and Harry's not a sales leader. Harry's a sales guy. And so there's all kinds of characters that you have on your journey. So I wrote a book about these characters, their stories from other entrepreneurs, from my own experience. And I think most entrepreneurs learn from stories versus learning from you know, tell me how to grow a business. So I put it all together and made a fun little book. Talk, can you talk about the process that you went through to write the book? There's, I, there's a lot of people now, I think, who are trying to find ways, anything from writing books to creating courses or, or trainings or whatever, trying to find way, different ways to get their brand out there, potentially monetize their, their content. And a lot of the, the struggle of people in, in book writing in particular is like, how do I do this? Do I just sit down and write for 48 days straight nonstop? Do I write, you know, two pages a night? Do I write a chapter a day? Do I use a ghostwriter? Like, talk about the process that you went through to actually get this thing done that you had previously put off. You bet. And Scott, I'd love to hear your story too, because I know you've written quite a few books yourself. So maybe we can compare notes. Uh, we actually, uh, on that website, I told you, who's your mic.com. We, we put together, uh, it's a four part series. We've got three of them released. One is why we wrote the book. It was two is like uh, more of the story behind the book. And the third is how we wrote the book. So I'm putting all this stuff out there for folks like your audience to, to follow and, or, or to steal. Yeah. And the fourth one is going to be how we did the audio book. So I read the audio book myself, which was an interesting yeah. experience. I did that um, as well. Which is harder than it sounds like, right? Yes. It's like, how hard can it be? Um, the, uh, the quick version on the book is um, when I write, if I'm sitting down by myself, I tend to edit as I write and I'm, it's too uh, time consuming and, and painful. So I actually partnered up with my nephew who uh, turned out to be a pretty decent writer. 
and I would, and, and then another friend of ours, his, his name is Evan Spencer. Let's give him full credit. And he's a, a archivist. So freaking librarian at the uh, university of Texas Arlington, uh, but he's a great writer. And then another friend, Rod Kurtz, who is a former editor of, of Inc magazine. And we would meet once uh, every week for two hours on a uh, Monday night. And I would just brain dump a character. Like I want to write about Mike. Here's what I'm thinking. Rod would poke holes. Evan would take notes, ask questions. And then uh, the, hopefully the next week or two, Evan would have like a draft because I would, if I write, I'm all convoluted all over the place. Evan would put it in some coherent order. Then I went through and I basically gutted it, put it in my own words and shifted things around when I felt like they needed to be shifted. And then I would get sent it to Rod for a kind of a word magic, I call it, because he could give me a little bit of extra fluff that I, that I didn't have. So that was a process. I paid those guys. So not everybody can pay a ghostwriter. And I had that luxury, but that was our process, but it was still freaking hard. And we did it. How long from end to end? About 18 months. But I, I, I had a day job and I was doing it, you know. That's not a rights. criticism. I'm not criticizing you, Kurt. <laughs> I didn't mean that to come up as criticism. I meant that as, wow, that's like a labor of love. Here's what's interesting though, Scott. And I don't know if anybody who's written a book out there in your audience would, would relate I didn't tell a soul, including other than those two, including my family, that I was writing a book really? until about a year in. Wow. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to fail. And that's my own head trash. Like I, I didn't have the right. confidence to do it. And finally at some point I'm like, fuck it, I'm gonna do it. And well, that so, part uh, of it, that part I, we all understand very well. I just want to add a little color here that there are um, you know, the following animals have. 18 month gestation period. <laughs> donkeys. How did you Google that so fast? We're hanging on every word right now, Richard. Yeah. Donkeys, giraffes, the velvet worm, manatees, camels, rhinoceros, walrus. Apparently I'm the manatee of, of authors, is what you you're go. trying to say. Richard. Manatee of authors. I like that. The sea cow. I like so, that. Uh, I hope that if someone Googles me and calls me out and says I didn't, I got it. I plan. hope you're right. Yeah. Kirk and I both heard you right. Well, right. I'm disappointed because I thought you'd give me your full attention. You're over there multitasking. <laughs> he's, he's a Google master. Google. I have an ADHD master. survivalist, and I actually ran out of one of my notes today, so I'm only on one. This so one of the one of the reasons to write the book for me, at least, was to almost use it as a calling card in terms of um, my ideas or thoughts and or a way to propel my brand a little bit. And I remember way back when, this is probably seven years ago when, when you were coaching my, my son, um, I was just starting to like get some pretty decent numbers. And, <clears throat> and, I, and I, I remember thinking like, oh, this, is, this will help. This will help get the word out there. This will help get the name out there, whatever. So, Pivoting from that kind of thought process, answer this question for me. A recruiter today without a personal brand is blank. A recruiter. So first of all, I'll just caveat again. My team are the recruiters. I'm not, but let me, let me think about that. A recruiter today without a personal brand is a commodity. Or a recruiting company without somebody, at least without a personal brand on the team is what? Is it still a commodity? I, th I think so. I think you're just okay. another person, you know, trying to schlep resumes. Okay. So now 
can you strategically try to talk about like how the brand decommoditizes you or separates you or gives you a competitive advantage when other people who are recruiters or other recruiting companies are also trying to do the same thing? So you're, you're asking me for, that's a bullshit question, Scott. Ha! Yes. I knew I was going to get at least one. You got two recruiting companies, let's say, or two okay. recruiters. You got Richard and Kurt. Okay. Richard first decides to stand out by creating a personal brand. But now Kurt's like, oh shit, I got to create a personal brand. So now I got two recruiters and two recruiting companies who both have a personal brand. So you used to be commoditized, but aren't you now still commoditized because you both have a personal brand or no? Is it different somehow? That's what I'm trying you, to get at. You know, I, I honestly, I'm not, now that you're asking me that question again, I'm not hundred percent sure that not having a personal brand is going to set you back in the recruiting realm. Um, although that's not true. Um, I, I think it's more important that you serve that you serve your clients well. You can be a great brand, but if you uh, if your clients think you're full of shit, if you're not a good at your job and you you treat them like like dirt, you're not going to have yeah. any success. So I, I fully agree with that. I, I I'm associating brand also with sort of the size of your network and your ability to tap into and leverage that kind of network. I imagine if if Kurt has a network inside of his personal brand of a million people. And Richard is over here with his network inside of his personal brand with 1,000 people. That's a pretty big disadvantage, I think. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. And so you're bringing up one of the differences in Hire Better in the uh, quote the rest of the industry. A lot of other recruiters rely on this network of people. I know everybody in town. I know all the CFOs in town. Um, we don't work like that, although we do know every CFO in town. We work for the client on what is the best candidate available anywhere whether they're employed or not and a lot of recruiters like you can't poach one cfo from another client because they're a client of yours and if you're a reputable recruiter so we we try to be agnostic on some of those things so we're not poaching from our clients that's that's a big no-no in the higher better world and we also will go look for people that are gainfully employed and a lot of the network folks will you know whoever's on the street so i gotta i have a i don't know Again, I'll, I'll attempt to book in that part of this conversation because I do have this other question around recruiting. Um, is the, rec but you can come back to it because you got so much good knowledge. I think we could just like throw out words to Kurt and he could just tell us really good stories. Well, I still um, want to hear Scott's version of how he wrote his book, but we're going to come back to that one. We're, we're going to, let's keep us going on the tangent, Richard. So um, my question for you is, um, you know, if, if you're hiring a recruiter, right, and the compensation level of that, is that one of the things that's broken? Is that one of the things that's right? You know, like, I, you know, I think, I don't know, some people know that it's, you know, X percentage of this first year salary, you know, uh, which can be, you know, again, 10, 20, $30,000. Um, and I get the value of that because it can happen faster. And if it's the right person, it, it actually helps you accelerate. So it does pay for itself. But is that good, bad? Otherwise, it depends. Like, what do you see? Yeah, honestly, I think that's broken too, Richard. And, and let me just tell you a little bit of a backstory. I, I actually bought Hire Better 11 years ago now, and we, we've changed it so much. So that's why I've taken the co-founder title. Uh, and I didn't have a, when I stepped aside as CEO, I didn't have, we don't have a board, so I couldn't be chairman. So I had to make up a title. Anyway, uh, I, I came in guns blazing. Recruiting industry is broken. Here's why it's broken. And I changed 10 things for hire better about how we were going to work. 
And when I'd sit down with Scott for, you know, over lunch, I'd, Scott would say, well, tell me about higher better. And I would name all these things were not, and all these things that were different. And after 30 minutes of eyes glazed over, he's like, what the fuck do you do, Kurt? I don't understand. And so I realized we, we had to have some version of the recruiting industry. So we actually do a percentage of comp and, and I, I hate it. Um, we, we, um, the reason people do that is because that's just the way the industry is, has, has worked for years. We are launching what I think is going to be great. We call it recruiting as a service. But if Scott, for example, your company needs a CFO, we'll go do a bespoke CFO search, which is kind of what Hire Butter does today. If you need five accountants or five account managers or five, you know, whatever, or you need 20 people over the next year, you can't afford to pay me 25% of, of compensation for each of those guys. But you could afford a, a certain number of hours of my team who are experts at recruiting to be, you know, 40 hours a month or 10 hours a month, a thousand hours a month to help you build that team. And when you're done, turn us off. So that's what we're building and we're, we're ready to launch that. That's really cool. So, um, and then, but what happens if it's, you know, there's a difference between the salary of an SDR versus a CFO, right? Or a sales, an individual contributor in a C-level executive or a VP, yep. how, you know, in that model, how does that work? Or is it based on certain things and it scales a certain way? Like, how does that? So, so in our legacy model, I try to, we try to uh, price it based on what we think the level of effort is going to be. And candidly, an SGR is sometimes is just as hard as the CFO. Um, so we, while we prefer to, to, to do the CFO searches, um, we, we tell people that your price is going to be up to a certain percentage based on the uh, level of effort once we scope the role with you or do a discovery with you. And so we, we try to be aligned with our clients there. It's still a percentage of comp and it's still not my preferred way to do it. But that's just currently how the industry works. And we're, we're trying to change it. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Go back and ask your question of Scott and his book process. Yeah. Scott, tell me about your book writing process and we'll have Richard Google the gestation for that period as yeah. well. I, I actually have three different processes for the three books. The first one I've been pestered about to get this sales philosophy, philosophy of mine um, into a book and, and out on paper for years. And I finally sort of said, fuck it in between gigs so i walked away from a vp of sales gig was sort of looking for a new one and i was like i'm just going to do this that gestation period richard please tell me what mammal i am i'm, I'm uh, googling it right now is i started that process around thanksgiving so let's call it mid-november and the book i believe was released in may so you're looking at six months or so wow now that one was easy I, because I had been talking about this thing and it was like fairly crystallized in my mind. So that didn't take long. I was like shot out of a camp. You did it by yourself? Uh, yes. That was it eight hours a day or like full days or what was that like? More like stop, start, like um, why well, get into a flow and it'd be a couple hours and then I would not do anything for a few days and then crank out a bunch of chapters and stuff like that. And then I worked with, I worked with somebody to, you know, do editing and, uh, you know, the design of the, the cover and all that, that kind of thing. Right. The second one was a partnership. I had been writing a newsletter at a time at the time. 
And uh, I got this message from this guy that I kind of knew through LinkedIn. And he was like, hey, these last couple of newsletters are so good. Like you should totally write a book about this. And I said, yeah, in my spare time, I'll tell you what, how about you sort of piece it together and we kind of co-author it and submit it as a book. And he said, yes. And he actually fucking did it. <laughs> and, and he like had a friend that, you know, had good design skills and like did all the, so we did that one as an ebook, by the way, the first one I did as paperback ebook and audiobook. So the audiobook process was absolute hell. Uh, voice actors deserve a lot more credit than they, they get, by the way. Yep. The third book was a labor of love. And because of that will probably be the last book that I ever write. That one was more of like an 18 month kind of gestation period, like a manatee, like you're talking about. Okay. And by the end of it, I just like wanted to be done. You know, it was like painful. And that one I used somebody like you where we did these Zoom calls and I'm just like spewing out information and they're, you know, organizing it and, and, and whatnot and editing it and all that kind of thing. So kind of different processes. Those were 2017, my first one came out. And then I released two in 2021. So one came out, I think, in January and the other came out in June or July of 2021. So, wow. All right. For those who are um, so excited to hear about the gestation periods of animals, right? So the... Uh, Black buck antelope is about 165 days. I like that. Right? The I like that one. The Impala, that's your new nickname, by the way, Black Buck. There like you go. That. Ooh, that's pretty good. Uh, then the other one that I thought was really good was the uh, the uh, gal the Gapuchin monkey is 180 days. Um, one too hard to pronounce, Richard. Right. So just say monkey. Uh, Monkey. Just say monkey, yeah. And then there was one of the baboons that was 180 days. Yeah, but a baboon is 185 days. So what was the other? The other one was basically a quickie version. So what's like the quickest gestation period you can find? Because he, uh, he his friend wrote it for him. So maybe maybe he even <laughs> yeah. Look up surrogate right. in, in, the, mammal, in mammalian form. The possum is 12 days, and the hamster is 16 to 23 days. We'll give you the the possum. Oh, days. Good yeah. lord. So, um, hey, uh, real quick, let's let's uh, talk about the uh, audiobook process. Yeah. So, for your listeners, it sounds super effing simple. You're just reading your book. How hard can it be? But Scott can attest as you are reading every line word for word and trying to enunciate and say any kind of, you know, uh, color to it. You have to read the next line silently while you're reading the current line out loud. And you you can't um and ah you can't have a stomach gurgle you can't have a dry mouth it is can't only painful it, it is really painful I did it on the first book I I waited I want to say I waited almost six months before I did the audiobook of the first one so it was a delayed release I and remember I, that and I went in and was recording it you know out a couple hours here a couple hours there whatnot. And then the last two books, I said, fuck it. I'm not doing an audiobook." And people ask me for it. And I'm just like, no, no. Yeah. Read it yourself. Yeah. So here's something funny. They told me going in that there's going to be times where you can't, you're going to struggle, which is fine. And there's going to be times where you can't, literally, you can't pronounce the word. And, and I had the luxury of not having 
sent mine to print yet. So uh, I was on the third day and I was reading the sentence and I couldn't get the effing word out, Scott. I, I mean, trying to say entrepreneurial nature, like a thousand times, whatever many times in the book. And I couldn't get the word out. So I said, fuck it, change the word in the book. Like we're going to change a different word. But I, so here's, here's my question. I here. love that so much. That is very on brand. That's something that I would do. I can relate to that so much. So, cause I'm going to go through this in a minute or in a pro and uh, when I, as my book gets to there, if you haven't sent the book to print, and even if you had, how many people actually read the book and listen to the audio and going to go, he changed that word. Now, Contextually, Kurt, based on what you were trying to say, I could see why that's really important because you were you were using a very specific phrase related to the industry, the book, and that kind of stuff. So I can see that, but is it really worth that effort? You know, uh, I was told by my the, the folks who helped me publish at Content Capital here in town, uh, they had a professional doing the the audio book, and I was told that if even if I said uh, you know, uh, screw them versus screw them. Like if the book said screw them, they would make me go and say it uh, grammatically correct. Wow. It wasn't quite that painful when I went through the process, I could say screw them. But he was very clear that the words had to, in order to, to be on the aud audible platform, everything had to be word for word. Oh, word. they, so that, yeah, okay. they have the whole checks and balances thing on that. That, that makes sense. Remember they don't that. want you to like print a book and then all of a sudden your audio book is like nothing what you said. It's something yeah. ridiculous. So thankfully I, I wrote the book in kind of how I'm speaking now. So I like for a fifth grader or for my own fifth grade uh, Arkansas education, as you guys saw earlier. Yeah. Um, so I could talk naturally when I, when I read the book to a certain extent. That's cool. We gotta, we gotta move to, to, to wrapping stuff up. Um, uh, so a couple things. So one, we want to give you a chance to ask us a question, although you asked a couple, which is great. Uh, we want to give a shout out to our sponsors of Sendoso Scratchpad Outreach. And our newest sponsor, Scott, is MedRep Meeting. MedRep. Yes. Uh, love those guys. Like I did some research. Try saying that 10 times fast. MedRep Meeting. There you go. Um, so thank you to them for, for sponsoring us. We also have our surf and sales event. Uh, Kurt, we got one, two, one or two spots left for November. So if you're not around, uh, feel free to come or, you know, send your nephew or, you know, as a reward for helping with the book. Um, number one, number one, uh, account executive on the team, that type of thing. You know? Yeah. He, he will be the first archivist at the surf and sales event. Yes. Well, he, he can lead an entire session on how to write because yeah. Lord knows we all could use the copywriting help. Yeah. What I just heard is you guys are comping his trip so he can be your, uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. So uh, we'll have a different conversation about our business model. <laughs> so if you have any questions for us, fire away. Otherwise, tell people where they can go find the book. And, uh, you know, well, first of all, let me say this has been a blast. I really enjoyed uh, this. You guys are awesome. I love the authenticity and uh, I love the approach. I can only imagine the Serpent Sales retreat is awesome. So uh, I, I would like to look into that as a point. Um, yeah, you can find, just check out who's your mic.com. We have a fun quiz. If you think you might have a mic or a Paul or a, a, a Harry or whatever, it's uh, who's your mic.com slash quiz. And, um, my well, we question for you guys, live. we should have screencast that. And I would put in Scott as all the, happened. <laughs> I love how Scott's allowed me to use him as a, as my scapegoat today. So oh, that's that's great. Great, Scott. It's great. This is one of my most fun episodes in a while. Mostly because I, I agree. Mostly because we just made fun of each other the whole time. <laughs> yeah. 
What was your question, Kurt? You got one more question. Well, it was going to be, you know, I looked at y'all's LinkedIn and normally I would say if you're hiring a salesperson, if they have like more than, you know, one job with less than, you know, two years on their resume, look out. You guys both have like 54 items on your LinkedIn profile for previous employers. What the hell? Now, some of them are consulting gigs, but tell me, tell me about that. So many of them are consulting gigs. And the way LinkedIn works, you're kind of SEOing yourself a little bit when you do that, because people do go and check who you've been with. I should, I, you know, I could go add a bunch more that I probably should, um, because it, every now and then I'll hear from someone like, wow, you work with all these great companies. So that's the reason I did it. I don't know what Scott's rationale was. Well, there's lots of different reasons for me to do it. But for example, Kurt, if you wanted to get some good uh, spike to your website, who's your mic, you should go create a company a LinkedIn page for who's your mic and then add that as a job title founder who's your mic.com or whatever <clears throat> put that on your your featured section of your LinkedIn profile and just announce hey started a new job as the founder of, of who's your mic whatever and LinkedIn loves that the algorithm loves that you're going to get three or four hundred hits on that people are going to yeah. say congratulations all over the place yeah so that's one of the reasons that that people do it for me I get asked to do it from many, if not all of the companies that I'm an advisor to. If you actually dug deep, I only worked for six companies ever full-time as an operator before I said, screw it, going to do my own thing. So that, that's part of the reason why. The red flag thing is, is interesting. You know, when I was hiring, and this was, well, I stopped in 2019 being an operator VP of sales. So I would have, I would have had some red flags and some caution with people who were under one year. I never I never I never was bothered by somebody who had been there about a year and a half or so. Um, mostly that would be dependent upon the sales cycle they came from. If they came from a big twenty four month sales cycle and they lasted eighteen years, that'd be a red flag. If they came from a place that was like a three or four month sales cycle and they were there eighteen months, I'd be like, you did fine. Something happened. Probably what's going on. Um, but I think that that's changed quite a bit. Oh yeah, last couple of years. Yeah, and I think that people on the hiring side are maybe much more empathetic, or much more understanding, maybe much more desperate in the in the talent war. I'm not sure, but I think it's not as frowned upon as it used to be. Yeah, I'll but, give you that. I agree. Yeah. I would agree. I, I would. I would add to that that um, it it's a little bit of a red flag, but to a certain extent, I sometimes want to talk to them because I know sometimes they need the chance and particularly the people who are early in their career, right? Where that's happened. Um, because it, you know, I always want to know if it's a leadership thing or a person thing and they don't necessarily know how to find the right kind of leader. And that's not their fault. Like none of us are taught how to go find your next leader very well, in my opinion. Um, I think that's actually a spot where recruiters can help their candidates Hey, what kind of leader do you want to work for? You know what I mean? Um, and maybe you have that curve. I don't know, but I think that'd be a cool, it's a good way to draw in candidates. Hey, if you're starting to look and you want to know what kind of leader you want, here's a fill out this form and they'll tell you. Kind of so, I'm writing you down as a future podcast guest for me. So we can hit on, that's a great topic for a podcast. Yeah. yeah. Find your next so, leader. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's an interesting one. Um, and I agree with Scott too, that it's not particularly, I mean, I tell everybody all the time, like, like, what about my six month or eight months or whatever? I'm like, if it's anything after 2020, like it's still COVID, 
And now we have the new recession on us. And it's like, you have the best story to spin if you have to spin it, as long as you're honest about what you did accomplish. Like, I don't want ever want people to laugh, to lie. Um, yeah. I want to talk about their accomplishments, but um, you can still everybody, spin. I feel like everybody gets one blip. Everybody, I have one blip. Yeah, yeah. Right. I was a VP of sales six times. One yeah. blip, it only lasted eight months. Yeah. Yeah. Bad decision on my part. Fucked it up. Learn from it. Yeah, I'll Forgot I'll end it and say I'm still in my one blip with Scott ten years in. So <laughs> you know, but Scott, I love you, and I'm coming uh, yeah, to Austin. Yeah. So you know. All right, Kurt. Thanks so much for spending some time with us, man. We appreciate it. All right, thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. This was really, really a lot of fun. So, Kurt, thank you so much, and uh, look forward to doing something else with you soon. You got it, brother. See you guys.